1: Hello and welcome to Coppola Connections, the podcast where I'm trying to find out, are the Coppola's the greatest film family of all time? And the way I intend to do that is to shake every single branch of the family's filmography to find out the answer to that question. On the last episode, I was joined by Helen O'Hara to talk about 2001's The Princess Diaries. This week... We're skipping forward three years to look at 2004's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Directed by Wes Anderson. And to join me on this deep sea adventure is George McGee of the Retro Ramble podcast. Be thinking to yourself, hang on a second Petros, it's Tuesday. What are episodes doing dropping on a Tuesday? Well, if you didn't see the post on social media or heard the little PSA I left at the end of last episode, this is the new normal, ladies and gentlemen. Episodes will be released on Tuesdays from here on out. There is a reason behind it, but it's very boring. As is always the case on this podcast, we will be doing a deep search into this film. There will be no stone unturned. There will be no Jaguar shark unhunted as we look at this film so there'll be spoilers aplenty if you'd like to find out if and where this film is streaming do be sure to check out a handy little document in the show notes unfortunately there isn't any patreon bonus content for this episode however one thing i would like you to do is head on over to cagedinpodcast.limitedrun.com you pick up either a pack of pins or one of the prints that are on sale because at the moment a high percentage of the proceeds from all of that is going towards charitable donations to women's aid and refuge so all that's left to do is to stick on some Bowie your Adidas and a red beanie as we make some Coppola connections
2: supposedly Cousteau and his cronies invented the idea of putting walkie-talkies into the helmet
1: we made ours with a special rabbit ear on the top, so we could pipe in some music.
2: The
3: Belafonte, home to Team Zissou. Skilled crew of deep-sea divers, adventurers, documentary filmmakers. Action! Led by internationally renowned oceanographer, Captain Steve Sisu expert on every aspect of marine life.
1: Swamp leeches, everybody. Check for swamp leeches. Nobody else got hit? I'm the only one? What's the deal?
3: But there remains one form of life about which Captain Sisu knows very little. You're
2: supposed to be my son, right? I want you on Team Sisu. The answer's yes. Well, it's got to be. I'll order you a red cap and a speedo. oh. This will be Team Zisu's most ambitious adventure to date. I'm gonna go on an overnight drunk, and in 10 days, I'm gonna set out to find the shark that ate my friend and destroyed it. What would be the scientific purpose of killing it?
1: Revenge. You must swear, legally swear, that you'll not kill that shark. Split into two groups. I'll take Ned, Ogata, and Wolozarski Thanks. Thanks a lot for not picking me. We're being led on an illegal
3: suicide mission. I'm going to fight you, Steve.
1: You never say, I'm going to fight you, Steve. You just smile and act natural, and then you sucker punch it.
0: Are you finding what you were looking for out here with me?
2: I hope so. <laughs> Quiet out there tonight. Can you hear the jack whales singing?
0: Beautiful. I wonder what they're saying. Well, that was the sludge tanker over there, but there you go.
1: 2004, we saw Jason Schwartzman and his mother, Talia Shire, in I Heart Huckabees. John Swartzman was the DOP for Meet the Fockers, and Nicolas Cage stole the Declaration of Independence in National Treasure. Elsewhere, we saw the release of Roman Coppola's first film with Wes Anderson, acting as second unit director on the focus of this week's episode, the adventure comedy drama, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. To join me in my search for the mythic Jaguar shark and hopping aboard the good ship Belafonte, with me is the new recruit and unpaid intern to Team Coppola Connections retro ramble podcast host george mcgee how are you george
3: i'm good thanks petros
1: thank you for having me it's it's it's, it's all it's all my it's all my pleasure so um <laughs> before we before we get talking about the couple of family tell us a little bit about um retro ramble what is it you guys do over on that podcast
3: uh so retro ramble is a a podcast that my brother charlie and i do And it's essentially us revisiting the films that we grew up with. Um, So mainly the sort of uh, blockbusters of the 80s and 90s. Um, So that could be anything from, you know, classic things like Goonies, Back to the Future, to, you know, uh, action classics, Predator, Commando, Die Hard um speed aliens that sort of thing um so yeah it's it's usually 80s and 90s but it's a chance for us to go back and say what made those films so great do they still <laughs> hold up a lot of them are still part of franchises or have been remade so it's seeing how they they stack up today so and yeah it's just a good way of uh, of charlie and i staying in touch and just chatting about films
1: perfect man it's, a, it's always great and it's great to see that there's a couple of uh Nicolas Cage films in there I have I've, I've listened to your episodes on The Rock and uh Face Off I believe no Con Air Yeah yeah so we there.
3: we we've done that that uh, Holy Trinity that action <laughs> trilogy I think Face Off was actually the first episode we did so we did Face Off and Air Force 1 as like our first episode and I'm sure you're the same. Well, every any podcast is the same. You're sort of a little bit, you know, you, you cringe a bit when you think back to your first episode. So in my mind, I'm I'm quite tempted to do redo face off again, like a, <laughs> a yeah, a re, a remake of sorts. Um, but yeah, we've we've done them, yeah. that that uh were they all all in the same year? Was it all ninety seven? Or it might be ninety-seven to ninety-eight. So you've got the, the rock no rock's ninety six, face off 97. 97.
1: cuz yeah. there's like there's a ridiculous overlap between Connor and Face Off filming. And I think it was like they came out within like a three-month window. So like I can just only imagine what what a, the summer of '97 would have been like. It's like yeah. you get that kind of assault of that ramshackled team in Con Air, and then next thing you know, you've got Cage and Travolta facing off in Face Off. It's like fucking out. <laughs>
3: so yes, uh, I say we've we've done the the I say it's, it's a bit like a, a the action trilogy for Cage, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the testosterone trilogy is what, uh, what I've coined it uh, here mm. on Caged In. Um, so let's talk about the Coppola family. When did you first become aware of them? Was there a specific person or when did you become aware of them as like an entity?
3: Um. Well, yeah, it, it does all start with um, Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola, Coppola, let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I mean, I have always been a bit of a, a film geek. I probably started reading Empire Magazine when I was about 14, mm-hmm. something like that. So obviously, you know, you you become aware of the classics, you know, like um, Godfather. And I think that was it. You know, it, it seemed a bit weird. I mean, I, I don't know um, if it was the same for you, but it seemed like there was a bit of a a craze in the sort of mid to late 90s about gangster films. Mm-hmm. Like all the rappers were really into them. So like Scarface, Goodfellas, The Godfather, and everyone had the posters and I remember some of my mates had the posters, but hadn't even seen the films. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, the Godfather poster is, you know, it's iconic, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, so, and it is, you know, one of those things, on, like a bit like Pulp Fiction on many students' bedroom, you know, walls and things like that. So, yeah, I think it all stems back with him. But um, obviously, yeah, the more I read, then you hear about more of the connections. So, um, and obviously I read, uh, oh, it was probably a long time ago now, but I read Easy easy riders raging bulls which is a fantastic book um so i knew about him as the are they the movie brats is it like him the movie Spielberg, brats, yeah. yeah lucas de palma and scorsese um and then yeah you just sort of through being a film geek, you read about the the connection so in terms of i think at that point obviously sophia coppola was just known as the bad actress in godfather three <laughs> um and yeah i knew i think i knew the talia shire connection and I don't think I immediately knew that Cage was, a, Nick Cage was a coupler. Um, But yeah, I, I did know that. And then, yeah, sort of, it kind of all sort of expanded from, from there. So yeah, it all started with Francis. Um, but yeah, I'm a big fan of of the other connections as well.
1: Yeah. They're, they're a fascinating family in the, the fact that there is this kind of, they have a little bit of something for everyone. So it's like, You've got your—I don't know—Nicolas Cage is almost like a, a genre unto himself, and then <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, he is. You've got yeah, you... but say that you know um, Francis Ford Coppola has done some really diverse films, hasn't
1: he? Yeah, that is the thing, and I think is that that uh, four film run in the seventies everybody holds up, and then everything else they kind of don't really look at, and there's like some some really interesting and great stuff within there i think like that that double like run of uh the outsiders and rumble fish in the 80s is fantastic
3: i can't see it like that's something uh charlie and i have talked about maybe doing as a as a feature for, for our podcast for like classic films that we haven't got around to seeing and the outsiders is one of them because that's got so many people in that in their like on their first films isn't it you know it's all so many iconic 80s actors
1: yeah so yeah you got like ralph macchio you got um, cruise uh, was yeah before he got his teeth done yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um so yeah i haven't
3: actually seen uh, outsiders or all, all rumblefish but yeah they're sort of on my to watch list at at some point
1: well perfect i would uh, if if you take anything away from this podcast that's a recommend from me those two um
3: so the con- the coppola connection for this time around is it roman coppola
1: so yeah this would have been roman coppola uh, acted as second unit director on this film
3: um so I I have to admit actually I didn't I I hadn't (laughs) heard of Roman Coppola so after after, with all my sort of film knowledge of the Coppola the extended family when I when you sent me the list of potential films I was like "Ooh, Roman Coppola I was like but then I looked at the films I was like yep let's go for that so (laughs) I wasn't actually overly aware you know I said I know Sophia Coppola no Talia Shire even know. Is it Jack Schwartzman um, who produced uh, Never Say Never Again? Because yep. I'm a big Bond fan as well. So I didn't even know about him. But yeah, Roman was a complete, I was like, oh, there's another one. And he's and he's a, a director as well, or you know, mainly an assistant director, but uh, it was news to me.
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one with Roman because uh, the, the Coppola family own a winery and there's a of course Sof- do. There's a Sophia <laughs> wine and there's a Gia Coppola wine, which is Roman and Sophia's niece. But then Roman doesn't have a wine, so it almost feels like even within the family, there's this kind of snub to him. And uh, <laughs> I, I always have this image of like Christmas dinners, and because he hasn't won an Oscar, he's nominated for one for co-writing Moonrise Kingdom. That like his dad's like, "No, go sit at the kids' table, Roman." Like you know, <laughs> and, but it's crazy. Like
3: he, you're no good to be
1: Roman. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's the he's the um. He's the Fredo Corleone of the <laughs> Coppola family, I guess. Uh, oh, come on, guys, give me a break. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's kind of uh, in my fictionalised version of the Coppola family. That is that is very much who he is. But he's he's an interesting character because he's he's kind of got his fingers in this. Like what I, yeah, he's like like uh, what I'm calling like a surrogate uh, cousin to the Coppola family, which is Wes Anderson. He's kind of like. He's there in the background of all of his films, whether it's like co- yeah. co-writing the Darjeeling Limited and um, even second unit stuff. He he does it for like he's done it for Jack. He did like second unit for a load of Sophia Coppola's films. So there's like this kind of he's always there, and like, yeah, yeah. So um, so that's our connection for this one. So n- well, you you had no idea of Roman Coppola, so I guess you don't re- remember the first time. You saw a a film that he had his fingerprints on it. So
3: well, well, looking into it, it does actually seem, and I'm a little bit ashamed to admit, it does seem like it is um, Jack. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that is one of the the random ones I remember seeing. That I think I saw that at the cinema. Oh boy! Um, oh boy! Yeah, indeed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, um, uh...
3: Yeah. Pr- probably when I was because I was too young to watch any other sort of couple of films. Like, oh yeah, t- go see another Francis Ford Coppola film. It's yeah, it's about oh. a guy that's. Really old, but he's actually a child.
1: Yeah, I I recently read the reason he took on that script was because it chimed with him because he had polio as a child. Oh, okay. and I, I was like, there are there are different ways to to portray that in a film than doing a film about a kid who grows up too fast. It's like no, 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 no. <laughs> and I I think Coppola is a director who very much works best under pressure, as we see with kind of like yeah. Uh, Apocalypse Now, a film that's kind of like when he's got the studios and Hollywood like breathing down his neck. It's like here's a fucking masterpiece, and it's like (laughs) when he's when he's when he's fed and watered and rich. It's like here's Jack.
3: Here's Jack. Yeah, Yeah. deal with it. Here's here's a mediocre Grisham adaptation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, what is your relationship to this film, and when did you first see it, George?
3: Um, I remember having fond memories of seeing us when I was at uni in Manchester. I remember it was a, a, a sort of a favourite of me and and my friends. I'm pretty sure we saw it at the cinema, but I just, I, and and definitely sort of revisited on DVD, but I just, yeah, have really fond memories. Of, and I think I even went as far, like this shows my age all the time. I remember um, downloading some of the soundtrack via LimeWire for Amazing. like. <laughs> So yeah um yeah listening to a bit of uh, Sue Georges at the yeah. uh, the Brazilian guy um so yeah i mean uh, some really yeah fond memories and i don't know for me like i'd i say i'd i was uh i knew of uh, Wes Anson. i'd seen his i think i'd seen all his other films up there because i think rushmore like had such a, 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 a such a claim when it came out especially mm-hmm. like in empire magazine i remember them talking about it and i think i went back retroactively to watch bottle rocket um royal tendon bombs i liked um but for this yeah for life aquatic it's, it's weird it's i i think it's a bit like uh, to use like a, a bond sort of metaphor, it's a bit like Goldfinger. It's almost like when Wes Anderson got his formula right mm-hmm. um, with with all those different elements. I mean, yes, you've got the big all star cast in Royal Ten Bombs*, but this has that sort of mixture of everything. The you know the Henry Selleck animation, the really sort of whimsical, crazy sort of offbeat story, um, and a little bit. Whereas I think obviously *Rushmore* and Royal Ten Bombs* are very New York sort of yes. upper class type thing so this felt different but I think for a lot of people it kind of was the first Wes Anderson film it was kind of Wes Anderson mainstream film in a way
1: yeah and it's like I think at the time it was a big a big commercial and critical failure so like
3: <laughs> yeah I, I was surprised at doing the research on it I was really surprised when I read that I was like I remember it being you know another like oh yeah it's another another Wes Anderson classic but that obviously wasn't wasn't the case I, th-
1: I think it's that thing that now obviously in retrospect we kind of look at it and because it's got such a, a prescience and kind of it's out there in the cultural zeitgeist and kind of like pe- like fancy dress parties people will be dressing up and it's kind of gained this like cult following almost that yeah pe- that people kind of look back at it and go it must have always been great whereas like at the time yeah for like a 50 million dollar budget, it only made like uh, 34.5, which is like,
3: yeah. I, and I know that... to to ask you, because was it quite a step up budget wise from Royal Tenenbaum's? Because, as I say, I imagine that's all on location in New York, that's going to be relatively cheap. Whereas filming this all around Italy, isn't it? Well, I, yeah, I it,
1: it's around Italy and it's on real boats, so like
3: it's going to be pricey
1: yeah and it's like uh wes anderson has since said there are there are aspects of this film that he would never do again so it's like filming night shoots on a boat he's like well now i would just yes. do that on a sound stage it's like it's absolutely freezing like but it kind of became attached to to the belafonte in that like they had shipped it all the way from south africa to the mediterranean sea so they could have it in italy and they kind of i think it's that thing uh, but it's interesting for the film because it's almost like the filmmaking process is wes anderson is almost like steve Sizzou. it's like i I don't just want to to make this film i want to live this film and i i I kind of like that when talking about like the coppola family because it feels like a francis ford coppola move to do
3: yeah it's ridiculous the attention to detail and you know there's not just um the um it's not just the filming on the boat as you say it's it's the fact that they obviously have replicated the boat you know to do that you know cross-section which is amazing and with the camera moving around and i love all that stuff i mean it just adds to that wes anderson-ness i mean it's it's really weird to say, but even in the opening frame of just like the music and the font mm-hmm. and you like, you know, it's a Wes Anderson film.
1: Yeah. And it's, it- so before we kind of get into what this film is about, do you mind kind of giving us a, a brief setup for the film if you could?
3: Uh, okay, so it's a bit of a tricky one because this film is a lot of things. <laughs> so, um, the, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is a about a an oceanographer, mm-hmm. uh, so a, a, um, a Jacques Cousteau, very much a Jacques Cousteau type uh, guy who does um, you know ocean underwater documentaries, and opens with his latest documentary where his best friend is killed by a mythical jaguar shark. Uh, and so he dedicates um his his next film to hunting the shark down as a as a, an act of re- revenge uh, but along the way he meets his possibly his illegitimate son uh, played by Owen Wilson um he encounters uh pirates um as well as hunting for the, the mythical uh, Jaguar shark. And there's his band of sort of misfits on his his <laughs> ship, the, the Belafonte. Is, is, is that good enough? For you? That's
1: that that's perfect. And there's kind of like, <laughs> there's a lot of moving parts in this film, right? So I guess like a, before we kind of get into it, a, a good place to start is talking about this mammoth cast that we have in this. It's kind of like, a, well, now it's like a who's who of, uh, Wes Anderson regulars and kind of some some odd choices and and saw some great choices in there as well.
3: Well, that's it. I, yeah, I think obviously, as I say, he kind of started it with uh, Royal Tenenbaums. That was mm-hmm. quite a cast he'd collected on that, and it does seem like that again. It's a Wes Anderson trait. It's like how many crazy people can I get in one film? Um, yeah. So, but we- yeah, there's, there, there's it's actually what if I haven't seen this film in probably. Uh, maybe four, or five years, and I've forgotten like all the people that crop up. So I forgot about Michael Gambon popping up mm-hmm. in it, um, and um, who else in there? And yeah, you, there's there's just so many great characters that pop up, and even if they have a tiny amount of screen time, they're you they leave you wanting more in a way. You want to sort of know more, spend more time with them.
1: Yeah, and it's like, well, for me, a person who kind of steals the show in this film is Willem Dafoe, and he kind of. <laughs> He kind As of Klaus, yeah. He says in interviews that he he didn't really like. He would look at his call sheet and it would be like I got two lines today, but then like it's all the stuff he's and and because I guess it's the way that Wes Anderson works and like you said earlier, this is the first film where he kind of really refined his style in that like stuff's mm. going on in the background all the time and it's like even if, and it's it it's great for rewatchability because it's like. Oh, you're you're. They're kind of walking around the ship, and it's like, what's Klaus like? What's Klaus doing? Or do you know what I mean what's um, what's uh, I'm tr- trying to it, Vikram doing? And he's kind of got all these like different characters doing their own little things, and yeah, Willem Dafoe is just like fantastic, and has some of the best lines. I think
3: because I think it's the funniest that Willem Dafoe's been. I mean, it's <laughs> you know shows his sort of his comedy chops, and yeah, he has as you say, he has some of the funniest lines like that. Interplay between him and Owen Wilson, where they're like they're sort of trying to out tough each other, um and and Klaus just keeps breaking.
1: I I love the line that Klaus says when uh Ned threatens him, and he says like next time, next time you touch me, I'm gonna I'm gonna knock your teeth out. And he's like, not if I see you first, Sonny. And it's like it kind of makes no sense, but it's just like I, I, it's perfect in the way that it's like it's threatening. But also, absolute gobbledygook that you're coming out with right now. Um,
3: yeah, and there's the moment when um, Owen Wilson slaps him back and he's like, We're even now. He's like, But
1: no, I need to hit you, but he's like,
3: No, because then we wouldn't be even again. <laughs> he's like, It's not fair.
1: So let's talk about the kind of opening of this film. What do you kind of make of this, this uh, festival? Like, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be like a. An Italian film festival setting in in a world in which uh, documentaries about jaguar sharks are kind of the prized film, the kind of opening film for a
3: festival. Yeah, and the in the equivalent of the Royal Albert Hall or something. It's a very grand, you know, surrounding, and it's a great sort of juxtaposition because, yeah, the 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 the, the documentary itself, and again, it just goes down to sort of. I don't know how you describe it, just the Wes Anderson weirdness or the kitschiness of the fact that it's all like clearly done on a studio and it's mm-hmm. clearly like, you know, stop motion fish and stuff like that. And I don't know, it just kind of, it just adds to the charm really, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I think it's beautiful in the way that it sets everyone up as well. Because obviously you kind of... Yes, very and, much so. And you get that that impression that it's like all of like Steve Zizou's world a colliding at once because you kind of like characters are brought in whether it's like somebody we assume he's had a fling with in the past who he tries to like kiss on the cheek that woman who's like that's I said, really
3: random i yeah. I've, I've remember that i was just like oh yeah they don't go back to that i mean obviously they just keep playing that he's a bit of a, a sleaze
1: yeah the, the, um, then you kind of get like angelica houston is well she gets that introduction when he kind of goes through the crew and stuff like that but like she pops in and then uh jeff goldblum's character alistair and stuff like that and you get a sense within the first five minutes of this like who steve zizou is and like one of them is like he's charming but at the same time he is a bit of a prick because like yep.
3: I, yeah yeah I've, I've got that in my notes is like he's a bit of a dick um he's really e- egotistical but i don't know if it's the murray charm it just makes him he makes him really engaging
1: yeah, because Wes Anderson said like his two influences for the character were Jacques Cousteau and Bill Murray himself, and there are uh, the the moment uh, where the guys asking him to sign all of those posters. I love that moment. Is from an actual moment uh, with Bill Murray, really and on on set. He said to, he said to Bill Murray, he's like. Oh no! When you did that in real life, you did it like this, and he kind of had no no recollection of it. But kind of watching some of like the behind-the-scenes footage, and there's like people coming up to Bill Murray. Like at one point, someone shoves a phone in his face. He's like, "Oh, can you speak to my friend?" And like Bill Murray's just like, "This is the police. We've got your friend here. You better get down here right now." And it's like that that. It, Steve, yeah there the, the lines are very much blurred between yeah Steve Zizou and Bill Murray and it's like you just kind of i don't know i i guess that plays to the film's strengths but i can definitely see how that would turn some people off of the film in some way
3: yes i mean um i think that's why i maybe like was was drawn to uh Wes Anderson's film because you know uh, we grew up big fans of Bill Murray you know mm-hmm. we Ghostbusters on regular repeat um, you know Groundhog Day and you, know, you just love that sort of dry deadpan delivery and it was Rushmore that was like his you know renaissance wasn't it that like he was kind of in wilderness for a few years and that kind of effectively gave him a new career and and a bit you know it's um, but I think after this like he kind of moves to be, being a supporting player in a lot of Wes Anderson stuff hasn't he?
1: Yeah, so like the Darjeeling Limited, he kind of gets like a a cameo at best, where he's like the film starts with it looks like it's focused on Bill Murray running running for the train, and then it's like he's overtaken by the by the brothers <laughs> in the film, and then it's like it's not about him at all.
3: Yeah, and so, yeah, so he's kind of got like a a blink and you miss it role in um, Grand Budapest, isn't he? He's like one of the other hotel managers
1: yeah the society of uh, crossed
3: keys crossed keys yeah um but yeah he's just like he's he's brilliant in this as i say i'm i am a bit biased because i do love bill murray and as you say this is almost like bill murray at his bill murrayist you know that sort of dry deadpan thing and there's yeah so many brilliant deliveries like you know when they ask him right at the start what would be the, the scientific purpose of of killing the shark and he just sort of takes a beat and goes well revenge
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's yeah Uh, i i I love that there's another moment early on with the like the guy who the heckler who says like who are you gonna kill on your next adventure steve and like as as i said like for a kind of setup for a film it, it perfectly portrays him that he's got this like he's got this mean streak in him where he's like he's obviously hurt but at the same time he has no way of 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 processing that in a kind of like uh, controlled. Yeah, controlled manner <laughs> in any way. It's kind of like he's, and I think it's something that Wes Anderson does really well. In that, like, this is almost like a child's view of what an adult or what a celebrity is. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's almost yeah. like written by a child. It's like, you'd be like yeah, we're we'll out for revenge, and like if somebody like I don't know, like a teenage boy, would be like, yeah, you just punch, you just punch someone, stuff like that, and it's like. Um, well, that's
3: it, and it's, it's it's the great thing is that he doesn't even, um, you know, he, he he attacks this guy and he doesn't even win. He comes away with like a bloody lip, yeah. And so it's like, yeah, the fact that yeah, he is always sort of, he's 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 you know, he's up for for the fight, but he doesn't always win. Um, but I'd be I'd be interested to, and I don't know if you know this, like how much of uh, improvisation Wes Anderson allows, because you know how much you, you can tell, you know, Murray is a great improviser, but. I imagine, you know, Wes Hansen's is quite a control freak, and this is, this is him and no Baumbach, isn't it? Yes. Scripts. So, so, so whether there there is that a little bit, because some of the lines feel very Murray-esque, but so, as you say, because it's written with him in mind, maybe.
1: So Bill Murray has said in regards to Rushmore around that time that, like, when he gets scripts, the way he looks at them is like, what do, what writing essentially do I have to do? On top mm. of this film, like do you know what I mean? Like, what improvisations have I got to put in? Like, where can I elevate this script to? And he said, when he got the script for Rushmore, he went, "This is written perfectly. I'm going to do what's on like what's on yeah. the page." I guess there's obviously leeway for like takes where it's like, do you know what I mean? Like, you go play around with off. it, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. But like, I think, and I think the way that, well, even more so with wes anderson's films later on it's that thing that everything is like a tight like stopwatch and it's it's all really like intricately done where it's like they, the lines almost have to be delivered yeah in a certain rhythm and well yeah watching watching a behind the scenes documentary like when he's kind of get like the the s Est- you know when he's just shouting Esteban at the beginning in that in that video yeah. they've got bill murray in a tank And Wes Anderson is there, like uh, saying to him, like, "So I want one long Esteban, and then on the second two, I want it kind of like one after the other, really quick." So like, there there is this thing of like you you get a bit of Bill, yeah, and and as you said, the film was written with Bill Murray in mind. mind. So I guess I, I guess it's that thing, like I don't know. We'll never know. I know I think the script for this one is out there. So I would like to kind of see yeah. if there's a way to like compare you know, the two. Compare <laughs> the two. Yeah. I imagine there probably is some some Bill Murray isms in there. And it's hmm. But I think I don't know, because it's a difficult character to kind of and it's it, it, it it's weird. And obviously, like we've we've mentioned Rushmore quite a lot, but I think they like uh, thematically like work really well together because yes like, and their lead characters in both of them are the, the like the best part like not likable like you are essentially like in in kind of like and yeah like if if they were a character populated in another film they would be like a villain almost they would be yes. antagonist because like you got this guy who's yeah he's on a thing of vengeance which is like quite immoral in the fact that it's like going after an endangered species he's happy to steal from like yep. a really nice guy who just happened to like, for, for what we get from the film, it's uh, Jeff Goldblum's character was married to Eleanor before before Steve was, so it's like yes. that thing of like, you're almost like the dick in this situation where you're like the kind of, he, I don't know, you assume that he probably wooed Eleanor away yes. from Alistair. So it's like
3: yeah. Yeah and he's also yeah it's quite clear that he's you know uses um a lot of Ernest's parents money, you know that's a sort of recurring theme throughout the film. And yeah I think like with um it's interesting with it, it's it's been a while since I've seen Rushmore as well but it feels like his character in Rushmore and his character in this there's that similarity of it's almost like he's going through what's well, not re- is it a midlife crisis it might be a bit beyond that but in terms of yes he's a dick yes he's flawed but he's almost like trying to make up for his mistakes by reconnecting with ned and and yeah you know he does seem to learn a bit by the end of the film
1: yeah but we get that weird thing with uh the relationship between ned and steve where it's like it's kind of up in the air for most of it whether like does he care if he's his son or not? Or is he just or is using he just him the for money? the money? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and, it's yeah. Like, and you kind of like, it kind of runs parallel with the character of Max Fisher. Like the kind of everyone in his life, he kind of uses as a pawn in his game, whether it's like his chapel partner, where it's like do his bidding and stuff like that. And it's like, he's just got his end goal. And it's like, and I think, yeah, like it it makes for a really interesting I don't. I, I like the fact that there's that thematic kind of l- lineage through um, Wes Anderson's career, and even even down to the fact that I think uh, Max Fisher becomes infatuated by the the teacher because he finds a a Jacques Cousteau book in the library, and then there's like yeah these weird like uh, uh, things that kind of connect the films in the. Um, all of the photos of Mrs. Cross's ex-husband who died—he died by drowning—but all the photos of him in her room are photos of uh, Owen Wilson because obviously he wrote the film, uh, okay. and then obviously Owen Wilson drowns. Oh yeah, in this, in this film. Yeah. So it's like that thing of like it's almost like they're in this kind of weird shared universe. Or from what I know, yes. Yeah. Wes Anson had this story in his pocket for 15 years he said he kind of had this idea of an oceanographer for, for all that time
3: that's nuts because I was, I was thinking is is Owen Wilson in every single Wes Anson film in some form
1: um, I'm trying to think, I'm, I think yeah I think so I think he is like his yeah they're, they're like they're, I think they're friends. They're friends, right? And it's like they're, they're, well, because
3: yeah, because because did they? Because obviously they're in. It's both Wilson brothers in Bottle Rocket, isn't it? Um, but um, yeah, thinking that, obviously, we'll get to it later in sort of the connections. I was thinking, well, Owen Wilson's in every single one of his films, so there's there's some sort of connection there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the the large the larger cast in this is great. I mean, Angelica Houston is 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 great just you know as you know they constantly referred to as the brains of, of the operation and just sort of just sitting there sort of she's above it all she's smoking away um yeah we've talked about you know uh willem defoe um i just yeah i love all the, the the smaller characters that aren't aren't you know don't get much to do but they're still just all like you know working away and, and doing their stuff
1: so uh matthew gray goobler who I think now people know him from Criminal Minds. He kind of plays like the um, "quote unquote" like every kind of show has it, where it's like are, are, a character is are they autistic, and they they seem to figure out all the crimes all the time. Like that's right. his kind of okay. like niche on that show, like uh, <laughs> their weird angle for it. He, yeah, he plays like the kind of curly haired intern who gets the oh, machete, right. the machete uh, through his shoulder. Who was Wes Anderson's actual intern at the time? Uh, That's and, amazing. And and let him like so. There's, I think you can kind of see it throughout the film. He's record he he got him to do uh, the making of documentary for the film, like say
3: so. because I, I think I read isn't the sound guy in the film is he Wes Anderson's sound guy as well? Like the guy who's recording all the sounds.
1: Yeah. So a lot of the a lot of the people. So um. Uh, yeah our kind of cohorts or named after so there's there's a guy who Wes Anson worked with all the time called Wally Wolodowski and obviously in this we get Noah Taylor's character as Vladimir Wolodowski and it's like these like nice little nice little Connection, kind of so link, yeah. yeah links to 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 people he knows and stuff like that and um him and Noah Baumbach tell a story of you know when Steve and uh, Ned go to the Explorers Club and there's those like young guys uh, taking the piss out of Steve. Yes, that that's based on like a, a story of one of their friends who who had like saw somebody who looked like an aging action star, told this story going like, oh yeah, so and so did this, did that, and the other, and then at the end of it realized, oh shit, it was that is bruce willis i like jimmy
3: <laughs> brilliant no i i completely forgotten about that scene and it's again it's it's establishing their sort of re- relationship but yeah you kind of forget like it's a little bit cringeworthy when it's like yeah he's saying oh yeah apparently he hit on my my mate's 15 year old niece and you're like oh but then you can kind of like kind of believe it with the zoo he's he just has a go at anyone
1: yeah and it's, it's it's this weird thing as well like i totally forgot like how kind of homophobic steve comes across like in this because obviously like the first, yeah
3: because obviously there's the whole thing with jeff goldblum isn't it
1: yeah and like I how yeah like i should probably address this like how does that kind of like because there's obviously like this ongoing joke quote unquote where he's like keeps calling him a faggot or like yeah. say, saying like he's a queer and stuff like that and then obviously the payoff to that joke is at the end jeff goldblum's character says like Oh, he admits, well, does not it well i am yep. half gay and it's like yeah did like I, I it feels like a joke that would be in like a, a a teen sex comedy from like the early 2000s not this
3: yeah it it does feel a little bit of a cop out that they could have just had you know jeff goldblum being a little bit effen- effeminate and that's you know that's steve's flaw that the fact that he's always belittling him for being you know camp um but yeah, I I thought that like it's I don't know it kind of works in Goldblum's delivery. You kind you you kind of get away with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, it is a it's one of the sort of more trouble uh tr- troublesome stuffs problematic. I should say.
1: Yeah, and I guess uh, another thing like I've I've heard people mention before is obviously like the lack of female characters in this film and kind of like when they are there. They don't really get to do much. So, like the character of Anne Marie Sackovitz, who, when we meet her, has got a got her boobs out and or is kind of like just in like kind of a stick in the mud. At, like she's the one who's <laughs> like, you guys are going through uncharted waters and stuff like that. And it's yeah. kind of like, come on, guys! Like that. Could, you, there's a whole there's a whole crew of people here. Why does it? Why do you have to paint the woman to be like the one who's like? Mm.
3: But then, it, I mean, yeah, it depends on how you argue. Because you could you argue that all the blokes are idiots for following blindly following yes. Zuzu, and and they, I say they do make it quite clear that Eleanor's the brains of the operation, and mm-hmm. she comes through and saves him multiple times. Um,
1: I, I I think like um, yeah, Angelica Houston amazingly, like kind of she just has this like gravitas in any film that she's in i guess for me like there's this weird thing that for years i had to shake off the image of the grand high witch from the witches and it's like like, all motisha adams as well yeah yes but like i I just have this like uncontrollable fear as a young kid of like the the grand high witch so it's like when i see her now i can kind of put that to one side and be like she is just like she has such like grace in this film as well and it's like when she's on screen, which is like, not not that much, but she gets no. to, she gets to deliver like some are like I think I don't know some what yeah at least one of the most important lines in this film when uh, Steve tells her that they're going out on this expedition and she says, "Well, one of you's dead already," and and you kind of like because it's kind I I don't know it's a bit grey that line because it's it's just after ned has kind of um joined oh, yeah and he's drowned yeah. he's he's kind of because she asked like was his did his heart stop beating
3: oh yes yeah that part where well, yeah, they he's in the in the training montage effectively yeah, yeah. And,
1: and and it's like and and then it kind of ties in once ned does die that the the camera pans down to the viewing platform and it's just kind of like lingers on a shot of Angelica Houston, and it's kind of like that line almost plays like a, I don't know, like the the Chekhov's gun of this film. It's like yeah, it's sh-
3: almost like a prophetic. Yeah,
1: yeah, like she, yeah, it's like that, that that whole scene is like, well, we're showing you he can't really swim, so it's gonna yeah. come up in the third act, everybody. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, and she obviously has the, and again, I I'm, I kind of like had half forgotten, but she has the. The killer twist that, you know, Ned is probably not C Sedan because he shoots blank. And I love that sort of, you know, sort of don't ask me how I know I'm a scientist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. And she also delivers that line to Kate Blanchett. And um yeah, what did you what do you make of Kate Blanchett's performance in this film? Um I
3: it's it's an odd one. I, I kind of like it, but it's sort of like Again, it's it's very random. It's you know, I yeah, she has her her own subplot going on about her her, her being pregnant and it being the editor's you know uh, baby, and he's married and stuff like that. And she, you know, obviously she's part of the love triangle, effectively, if it is a triangle between Steve and, and Ned. So yeah, it's 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 a, it's a weird role, but it's obviously she's getting gets Steve uh you know Steve to react to certain stuff and you know is is peeling away the layers with him um but yeah I don't know if if she's a likable person or whether she could be seen as annoying but she's interesting definitely
1: yeah I find I find her like fascinating in the fact of like and I think it's that thing of like I don't know is it is it one piece too many in this kind of weird puzzle because it's like i i guess you get that mirroring of the whole thing of like cuz she delivers a line about um looking for like a, a father for her baby i think she like it, she's in shock and delivers she's like i'm looking for a baby for this father and like steves like mm. i i know exactly what you mean like cuz it's after the pi- the pirate attack or whatever and um you kind of get that mirroring of that thing of like so you have that ned looking for his dad and then you kind of get this thing of her then looking for like some kind of family yeah whatever it is and i think that's like at the core of this film is what it's about right it's that thing of like trying to find family and like cat, family doesn't have to be like blood, blood relatives yeah and it's kind of what we see with the kind of zizu gang is that they are kind of like this ramshackled, I don't know, misfits of people who kind of don't fit in anywhere else, and it's like we got a bus driver, we got like a, I don't know, like a supply teacher or whatever, and they're kind of like all coming onto this boat to to be a part of this family.
3: Because do he, he even says that to Klaus? He says, uh, "Esteban and I always thought of you as our little brother," sort of type thing. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. Um, Which Klaus? So, yeah. Says what is it? He says that. It, in response to like, I always saw you as two dads and he's like yeah. please don't tell anyone if that sounds a bit weird <laughs> <laughs> um is, is there yeah is there any particular scenes that you really feel like we should kind of uh chew over and really get into um
3: I'm just having um having a think I mean I'll say that yeah there's there's so much like it goes off in so many little strands. I say you've got the random bit with pirates. You've got um, the the sort of adventure part with you know sh- uh, hunting the jaguar shark. And it's yeah, I don't know. I just I, I like the the fact that the Henry Selick animation. Then obviously he would go on to do Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, and I love dogs. I haven't. I still haven't seen that, by the way. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's. I really. I love. It I just adds to that sort of surrealness of the whole piece. Um, but yeah, uh, in terms of the, we haven't touched on the soundtrack. I mean, it oh. is you know it's a phenomenal soundtrack.
1: So yeah, both the like, I guess it's what we get with Wes Anderson films, right? You get like kind of yeah. a two for one, where it's like you get needle drops and then you get these. It, uh, especially in this earlier stage of his career, you get the Mark Mother's Bow, like uh, from Devo, his kind of like.
3: Yes, <laughs> I, love, I love all that, like, electro synthy yeah. stuff. It's brilliant.
1: It's perfect. And you kind of like. And it fits perfectly in this world, because obviously Noah Taylor's character is when you're introduced to everyone, he is like the guy writing the music. So it's like, yeah, it all sounds like it's made on like little drum machines and Casio keyboards and stuff like that. Mm. And it's. Um, I love the. The kind of zizou society like theme like that kind of like plinky plonky piano it's like yes yeah that, that that and then it kind of like gets almost like a remix at the end when they go down on the submarine he's like oh here's his ned's theme and it's kind of like mm. that with like a thumping bass drum and stuff like that
3: and uh, obviously you've got um as i mentioned earlier on you've got uh brazilian singer uh sue george doing all the ba- bowie covers which is yeah. amazing and again yeah i say like we we listened to that loads when when it first came out and it just adds again yeah it's just such a uniqueness to the film um yeah it's, it's great and I, lo- I love the the bits in the like as you say you know you talked about logistics of filming on a real boat but it makes Makes the films like I love those sweeping shots of of that boat party at the start where it's constantly following back again, sort of soundtrack by Bowie, um, but it's, you know it's following to the, the front of the boat. I don't know my boat terms. Is it the prow? Um, <laughs> and then and and then back again, and it's focusing on all the different uh, you know. Conversations and stuff. I I think that's, I, I, and then again, you've got I say the the cross section of the the boat as well. I love all that stuff, and I love that throwaway line of you've got you know a, a spa inside, you've got a lab, a recording thing, but then he talks about the kitchen, which has the most advanced <laughs> equipment yeah, yeah. on the ship. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if the is the pirate subplot uh, one subplot too many. Uh, it just feels a little bit left field but it it is still you know it's it's enjoyable you know how it does with that, that whole set piece with the rundown hotel and stuff
1: yeah so yeah so i i love that like when when that stuff happens as much as it is like a kind of like you could if you if you were strict with this film you could go in with scissors and go like let's get that out of there but i think it kind of adds like i don't know and it makes the film feel like you are almost watching one of steve's
3: like, it's like a fever dream isn't it
1: yeah it's like it's one of his one of steve's it's like you're watching the film within the film almost and it's like or yeah. like hearing one of steve's stories of what happened and it's like maybe if you saw the real thing like it wasn't like that at all or whatever and it's yeah like, and you get some of the well, best com- comedy out of that as well just
3: yeah, well, definitely. And as you say, it's, it's all, you know, it's set up at the start, you know, literally Chekhov's gun, the fact that he, he has that rule, everyone carries a piece, you know, everyone has a gun. And it's just sort of like, but why do they need that? And then obviously it's, you know, becomes apparent. And yeah, I, I love that it does just add to the surrealness and the absurdity of the fact that it does, you know, for, for five or 10 minutes turns into a bit of an action film with them storming this, you know, derelict hotel
1: well i think as well it kind of like it gets an audience it's clever in the way that it gets an audience like it really builds you up like it gets your heart racing as it were and then yeah. like it literally comes crashing down when we like see steve at his lowest but at the same time he's he's always on in a way because he says like when he falls down the stairs he's like uh did you get that like did did did, did you see that and he's like he's like this is what the film is and it's like this film feels like it is a meditation on filmmaking and very specifically like Wes Anderson's way of like making a film like even like yeah right up like that thing with film festivals like opening and closing the film at a film festival and like that thing of you have this you have this mission to to seek this pure like mythic creature which almost could be like a film where you're like i'm trying to get this unattainable thing but at some point you've just got to let it go and kind of like the way they're looking through the like viewfinder in the submarine it's kind of framed like it's a like it's a tv screen essentially and yeah kind of or looking at it swim away and it's like kind of him saying like let's just wash our hands let's just like the fi- uh, yeah, the film is go. done yeah 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 um,
3: uh, and yeah there's that you know that bit at the end with the jaguar shark again like uh the... sort of just just uh brings me back to my uni days of listening to seagull ross on repeats and just oh, it's beautiful music i have no idea what they're saying but it's so beautiful <laughs> um but it is a really touching moment even though yeah i say it is it is absurd you've got you know how many people in that <laughs> two months open it even has a little sign saying no more than two people in um and you've got, yeah, the Henry Selleck's stop motion animation. But it is it's a beautiful scene. It's it's really nice. And it's really I don't know why it's touching, but it, it is. It, you know, even, even though it's so ridiculous, it, it still manages to come across as touching. And it's I suppose that's just the power of, of filmmaking in terms of the editing, the music and, and everything.
1: I think the thing that works really well with this film as well is is the fact that you kind of get blindsided where you've you've been following a character throughout it where you go like, Oh, he's 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 a bit of a dick. And then by the end of it, you're like, I actually really care what happens yeah. to him. And like, by the time kind of credits roll, we get that like amazing, like thing of like everyone joining him as he's like, I love that walking yeah, yeah. down the, yeah. Walking down the pier. And you've got, uh, even Werner who's in his kind of Steve Zizou-esque, um, Lederhosen now. And like everyone's joining, Yeah. 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 Like everyone's like, and it's like, I fucking like, I want to be a part of that team. And it's like, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's fantastic. Well, I was
3: thinking that in terms of the steam the the uh, the steam uh uniform. Obviously, they talk about the has uh, his own uh, Adidas. Um, and did they actually release really, really, the Sazoo limited edition Adidas three stripes? You know the.
1: I don't think oh, okay, the, the, I, I um, remember those I, retro trainers. I looked a while ago, and there might have been like a very small run at the time, but they kind of. You can get like people have customized. I guess it's like Sambas. I think you can kind of, or like there's a there's a certain style that you can, yeah. you can like essentially get an all white pair. Is and it called gazelles? Are gazelles, they gazelles. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They're essentially gazette like. Yeah. I, I I don't know why they, they 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 haven't done it as like I don't know a te- like t- in two thousand and fourteen. The ten year anniversary, or I don't. But part of me thinks like maybe it's a Wes Anderson thing, where he's like I like it for the film, but then if I like do it as like a corporate tie-in outside of the film,
3: I don't want to be a sellout.
1: Yeah, then it's gross. Do you know what I mean? Like in the, in the same yeah. way he didn't he didn't really want to cast the kid from Dennis the Menace in Rushmore as his chapel partner because it's like. <laughs> He's been in something really successful. It's like you've also got Bill Murray who was in the is in Ghostbusters too. So like you, know, you can't you can't you can't pick and choose when you want to like deal, only deal with cool people. Um, so I'm just trying to think of like any any other areas that we have missed out on. I guess I don't the, the how does yeah how did how does it make you feel about like the death of. Uh, Ned in this, how do you think it's handled within the film?
3: Uh, that's a good point because that's one of my issues with um, Wes Anderson, in, in, all, in all honesty, that I remember people raving about how much they loved uh, Grand Budapest. And it, has, it is one of those films that has grown on me, but I didn't like it as much first time around because a lot of his films have this melancholy, this this sort of bittersweet ending um, that always ends in a sort of a death at, Is it always, like, necessary? So, you know, for example, in Grand Budapest, you have, obviously, what happens to Gustav. Mm -hmm. But then it's... um, I can't remember the lead... The um, What's the lead character in it called, again, the the bellboy? Zero. Zero. Zero's wife, you know, they get together, but then she dies. You know, it's all as part of, like, the epilogue sort of type thing. And that kind of, like, depressed me slightly. And I suppose it's less so in this, and it kind of all ties into the storytelling but it always seems like it's a recurring theme in a lot of his films there there has to be there's a little bit of a, a, you know a, a, an element of tragedy uh towards the end it's,
1: it's like they can't get away from especially him and noah back together they, they can't get away from this kind of naval gazy new york thing where it's like it can be funny but it's gotta have a bit of like pathos and sadness at the end it's yeah like,
3: it, it can't be tuesday z- it can't be all zany <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, yeah it's the, the, i think the thing that really elevates that is is the the choice of song for his funeral that that zombies track is absolutely like it it flaw, it, it, it floors me every time and even like the build up to it where it's got scott walker's 30th century man as they're kind of getting ready to go up in the helicopter and stuff like that and it's like uh, yeah i hadn't well I hadn't watched this for years until I kind of watched it again recently and then rewatched it again today for the podcast. And it's like, I'd kind of forgotten about the fact that like Ned dies and it's, I I don't know, like what watching it again recently. And that, like that's that whole scene where you get that, that letter. And it's like, it's almost like Steve saying like, well, it doesn't matter either way if you're my son, like,
3: I still want you to be part of my life.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. It's like, yeah. and it's. I, I think I, I do know. And it's it's well, well <laughs> There's a case and, to be. I was gonna say, and the fact
3: is that his his death it just seems a little bit over the top. That the fact that they've they've crashed, mm-hmm. and then he's kind of like he's bleeding mysteriously from something. They don't really establish like the, the helicopter goes straight down, and it's kind of like oh yeah, and I'm I'm bleeding to death and I'm dead, and it's sort of like did he and i keep saying like, did he have to die but mm. yeah i suppose it's all part of that bittersweet tale
1: well the thing is it kind of has that like bizarre like well i think it's like done really well but those like interesting shots and cuts where it goes from like a flash of red a flash of white like the bubbles under the ocean yes ned yeah that kind of, re- yeah, kind of
3: yeah re- it kind of um reminded me even though I, have, I haven't seen very little but it, it felt very sort of 60s you know cinema a little bit you know is it maybe maybe it's true or something like that like where this, yeah as you say like jump cuts random sort of inserts and it's a bit disorientating but i did like it yeah it's a good, good cool I, bit of style
1: i i thought if they'd kind of left it as that and that kind of like that let us know that he had died like do you know what I mean? yeah I think the audience is smart enough to realize with that like and then yeah it's, it's kind of a, a, a a damp fish, like when they kind of have that, like cause it's a bit of a nothing conversation afterwards. Yeah. I guess, I guess it's the thing of like they need that shot because they need the funeral, right? So they kind of yes. needs to be the body. It can't just be like he he never resurfaces from the water. I don't know, like
3: yeah, and I suppose it is just that like we need to make this absolutely clear. He's dead, and it's it is him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, um, let's yeah. Let's get on to some couple of connections in regards to this film. Uh could you find any other links between this film and any other couple of films with either people who've worked on it or in it?
3: So I uh, I've I've made a list. I made oh, a list. Perfect. So um c- cause I was I, I listened to one of your, your your previous episodes and there was a lot of connections. Like, oh god, I'm gonna have to do my homework here. <laughs> um but obviously, the the, the the biggest connection in this is Murray himself. So he's done at least two films with Sophia Coppola. He's done two big films. So he did obviously this uh, Lost in Translation and uh, on the Rocks. That most recent one he did On the Rocks. I, I haven't seen that yet. Have you?
1: No, that's uh, that that is on that is obviously on the list for me. But there's so so many films I have to kind of get around before I get to that but one. But it was
3: also one of those, because it's exclusive to Apple TV, and you're like, oh, really? Can you not make it <laughs> yeah, another free trial. Else?
1: Another free trial? Like, <laughs> oh, really? And it's only um, a seven-day free trial as well. They get yeah. you with that one.
3: Uh, but actually, my my, uh, I just remember my wife does have a, an Apple TV thing, so I might have to check <laughs> that out. Um, so yeah, you've obviously got um, Murray and, and Sophia Coppola. Um Obviously, you had Wes Anderson and uh, Jason Schwartz. Jason Schwartz is not in this. He's like probably the one Anderson film he's not in. He seems like he's in every, nearly every other one. Is he? I don't know if he's in Moonrise Kingdom. But... Yeah, he
1: plays Cousin Ben in Moonrise Kingdom. Right. He, okay. He's not in the Royal Tenenbaums, which like uh, it's really interesting. I've, I found out recently that the character of Mordecai, the the Falcon, was supposed to be another character but like he realised there's too many moving parts and cut, <laughs> cut the character out. So that was going to be Jason Schwartzman's character was a, a, an actual, I don't know, a person that Richie would have met as opposed to chatting to oh, a okay. falcon.
3: Bizarre. <laughs> um, so um, a bit of a tenuous uh, connection, but Michael Gambon was in uh, Layer Cake, which is a Matthew Vaughan film. And then Matthew Vaughan did Kick-Ass with Mr. Nicholas Cage
2: perfect
3: um, also uh, Willem Dafoe was in the Spider-Man films and Mr Cage was in Into the Spider-Verse as Spider-Man Noir I love it <laughs> uh, and then I do, I've got just Jeff Goldblum question mark and Angelica Houston question mark I feel like they've been in so many films that there's bound to be so I'm waiting for you to school me on this
1: So can't Gold- be some connections Jeff Goldblum weirdly there is no connections which I kind of really? don't that- like baffling. Uh apart from like the obvious uh other uh oh actually there is two connections that aren't Wes Anderson films which is Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom and Jurassic World Dominion which are both uh lensed by John Schwartzman like the Uh, the cinematographer. Uh, Angelica Houston is in Francis Ford Coppola's Gardens of Stone She's in *The Darjeeling Limited*, which obviously uh, hmm. stars Jason Schwartzman. Yep. *Isle of Dogs* she's in as well, and she's okay. in a Michael Jackson-like film that Francis Ford Coppola did in the '80s called *Captain EO*.
3: Never heard of it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, I I had I, I hadn't until I kind of like did the research of this podcast. It's like I, I'm not sure if, if if I have to watch that one because it's like an extended music video i think i don't think it's a feature oh. film and it's like oh yeah, dear i don't really want to be talking about michael jackson either <laughs>
3: <laughs> i mean i am a completist but i got to draw the line somewhere
1: exactly um there's some willem defoe connections uh with regards to Nicolas cage so he was in dog eat dog with Nicolas cage and wild at heart and then uh, there's a mark mother's bow Connection to Nicolas Cage in that he scored the new Crudes movie, uh, Crudes A New Age. So, yeah, there's that one. And Michael Gambon is also in The Terrible Christmas Carol, The Movie, which uh, is a 2001 uh, Simon Gallo like starring adaptation of a Christmas Carol. I was going to say, because
3: there's one with Patrick Stewart that's supposed to be terrible as well. I was thinking it might be that one, but no, they, it, it seems like it's one that's like, oh, let's just churn out another one. We'll get some Brit in it and we'll put it on TV. It'll be fine.
1: Well, it's, it's got Nicolas Cage as Marley's ghost. And it's like... For,
3: sold. <laughs> I'm sold.
1: But for how bombastic Nicolas Cage normally is in films, he's like, he sounds like somebody going, oh, I'm a ghost. And it's like, Really? Like it's like a couple of years earlier, this guy was cast a fucking Troy. And now, like...
3: And you, get, and you can tell they cast him for that reason. Like, he's going to be fucking off the wall. He's going to be bringing yeah. his own chains and everything. He is going to be brilliant. And then he's like, oh, guys, um, I'm just going to play it really low.
1: I'm like, no, Nick, no, go crazy. We want crazy. Yeah, so obviously, like, yeah, and it's animated as well. And it's... So Kate Winslet is in it. And there was a song that Kate like the only song that Kate Winslet has ever sung was for that film. So if you remember, uh, without without looking too no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother googling it because it'll probably take me a while to find it. But yeah, it's a very, a very bizarre animated film that you should not watch at Christmas ever. Um apart from that, there's yeah, all of the other kind of copper connections are very uh very obvious in regards to the Wes Anderson connection. Mm. And a Sophia one that you missed is she directed A Very Murray Christmas, the Netflix uh special. I, yes, I I didn't
3: realize she was behind that. I knew of a Murray Christmas and it wasn't until I was going through the notes I saw uh I saw that I haven't seen it, which is bizarre because I say I'm a big fan of Murray, but it just seemed a bit weird. I'm just like, is what is this? Is is it going to be any good or is it going to be cringe?
1: Yeah, it's. Um, it, I think it's full somewhere in between those two things. Like, it's, I'm
3: always a bit dubious of these Yeah, Christmas specials. It's like, oh, really?
1: And Roman Coppola, again, was second unit director on A Very Murray Christmas. And ah, well, there you go. Just a, a weird thing that I will have to cover at some point is he directed the Mariah Carey uh, Christmas special that came out on Apple TV last year.
3: I think my wife did watch that. Uh...
1: So that is directed by Roman Coppola. So, like, I was going to of...
3: say, so that was going to be my question. Has he, di- what's the biggest thing that he's directed solely, like, has sole credit for?
1: So, he has directed three films. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. So, I know two of them are he did a film called uh, C- uh, CQ from the year 2000 and has directed a film called Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III which right. is okay. yeah which stars bill murray and has like a kind of um i think charlie sheen's in it patricia arquette and there's like a lot of like kind of uh wes anderson alumni in that film as well so i think jason schwartzman pops up so okay uh, I, I i the fact that like not many people have heard of it i i am trepidatious to whether it is any good but uh yes. i guess uh yeah, listen to a future episode where I, I delve into that one.
3: Well, yes, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a funny one with like, again, it's something that you sort of delve into in terms of like film knowledge, in terms of you know first direct, second unit, and stuff like that. That I, like it's something that I've uh, I was reading recently. Um, you've, you know, the have you heard of the stuntman Vic Armstrong? He did like yeah. he, was, he was Indiana Jones and Superman, and did a lot of the Bond films, but he became in his late career, like a very accomplished second unit director. And I think he only directed one film, but it seems like once you get in that sort of not pigeonhole, but you kind of, you're quite happy with that. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll just carry on doing second unit. And it it seems it's a bit of a, an anomaly in my mind. Like, well, surely you want to keep going until you get into that you know, (laughs) overall director.
1: Well, Roman Coppola is very interested in the fact that like, he's kind of got a lot of like strings to his bone that like, He's a producer on a lot of stuff. He now runs American Zoetrope, the oh does he? Okay, studio that yeah, Francis Ford Coppola started and has like got TV projects. I'm not sure if you ever saw the Amazon Prime original uh, Mozart in the Jungle.
3: I um, heard of it. Is that was that with Gail Garcia Bernal? Yes.
1: So that is created by Jason Schwartzman, Roman Coppola, uh, Paul White, and Alex Timbers. So and like he's got like directing credits for a load of the episodes on that show. So it's like that thing of like, he, he is like the kind Yeah. He's like the shadowy figure in the back of the couple of family. Like, I don't know. I guess, I guess if it, if he, if he were in the submarine at the end, he would very much be like Jeff Goldblum's character, like poking his head up at the back. Yeah. Yeah. Or, Or the, or the bond company stooge.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, i love uh ah. i love him and and i forgot about that that killer line when jeff gilbert's like is this my coffee machine and he's like where did it come from and he's just like uh we fucking stole it man
1: he he's amazing bud court and he's another one where it, it i find it bizarre where wes anderson has said like we wrote that role specifically for him and it's it's that thing of like i don't know i, I, I guess what anderson would have had the cachet at this time for people to say to people like can you come in to do like these small roles? Because, like,
3: yeah, I've written it. Well, I suppose it's a good way to win the moment. I've written it specially for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like Sir George, like, he doesn't really, well, he gets, I guess he got a whole like David Bowie, like, uh, got an album out of it. He got an album out of it. <laughs> and, like, as much as he doesn't say anything, he does loads. And yeah. he kind of like, he's great when he's on screen. And then he gets these moments where it's like, like that brilliant one where he's singing, uh, yeah, the Bowie track on the back of the boat, and it's as the pirates turn up and stuff like that. Yeah,
3: yeah he's completely oblivious.
1: Yeah, he's like singing Starman, I think it is yeah. at that point. Um, so let's get on to rating this film, and the way I do that on this podcast is asking you what would be the perfect wine pairing for this film.
3: Well, I think because it's uh, it's set. In and around Italy, uh, I'm thinking something, something red, something Italian, something maybe you know. A lot of I like a lot of Italian reds, so maybe something you know like a um, a Nero Di Volo, something like that, or you know something fruity. Um, yeah, I think it'd have to be a, 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 an Italian red, something punchy like that.
1: Perfect. I'm going to go off piste with this one and say this is the perfect film to drink a uh, a Campari on the rocks with.
3: Well, I am currently drinking a, a Campari and tonic in in uh, in honor of Mister Zisu. So that's probably the little you know the you can hear the, the, the tinkling of ice <laughs> in my Campari.
1: Perfect. So, how much are we paying for this bottle of wine? Is it is it are we are we sticking on the, the first page of the menu, or are we 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 flipping over to the other side? Right?
3: I think in sort of well, it, you know, there obviously is that throwaway line in the film about like when the guy goes to serve wine to Owen Wilson, he's like no. To me, that he knows nothing about yes, wine, so yes. I, think, I think it has to be a good wine. I think it has to be at least page two because you don't want to be seen as being a bit of a skinflint or not knowing <laughs> about wine. So go for the middle page, and you're in sort of safe territory.
1: I like at that point as well that, like, uh, he, he wouldn't have been able to afford that bottle of wine. That, like, yes, do you know what I mean he's probably like, yeah, just put it on, like, uh. Put it on like Michael Gambon's character's account or whatever. Like, or I've, I've got some credit here. Like, people know me. Like, um, so would you recommend people check out this film if they haven't already?
3: It's it's a funny one on the, uh, this one because I think Wes Anderson is an acquired toast. Mm-hmm. and I think there are a lot of people that don't don't get him or just don't like him. It's quite. I can understand why people. Some people might see it as a little bit pretentious, a little bit too whimsical, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. So I, you know, it's 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 an acquired taste of comedy. It's quite dry. It's quite surreal. It's not like your clear gags and setup. Um, but I, I love it. I think it's it's um, it's it's probably my my favorite Wes Anderson film. Uh, I think it's it's got yeah it's, um, a great you know lead uh, one of bill murray's best performances um i just love how random it is how surreal and 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 quirky but so yeah i would i would definitely if you're a fan of wes anderson's films and you haven't seen this uh which (laughs) i imagine is a bit of a a stretch or a fan of bill murray and haven't seen this i would definitely recommend it uh i would also recommend it to any bowie fans
1: yes yeah
3: (laughs) um I think I think that's a, 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 a must. So yeah, it's it is definitely a tricky one with Wes Anderson because I realize, you know, it's a bit like in a way um Napoleon Dynamite. I love that film, but I realize that it's just a bit weird for some people's sense of humor that they just don't get it.
1: That's a, that's a that's a yeah, that's a perfect uh, comparison to make for the for these two films and like I I don't know cuz there's an element of me where it's like i love i love this film like i'm just like and i think it's the first wes anson i may have seen uh so like and i had this like i don't know i i I found it with a lot of like i've been revisiting a lot of the wes anson films uh, recently they kind of hit you differently at what what stage of life you watch them so like with with something like this it's like when i was younger i was like kind of swept away in the swashbuckling of it all and kind of like being like yeah that would be great and like kind of like almost uh relating to steve do you know what I mean that kind of thing and i think it's like at the end of the film where like he uh he reads the article that she's written about him uh the the journalist and says like Oh people are going to think I'm a bit of a blowhard like yeah a bit of a blowhard and a bit of a prick and it's like that thing of like as you get older you realize like oh yeah like you start to realize not necessarily those things but you kind of get a bit more self awareness and it's like yes th- this yeah, film yeah, happens definitely. to be about a man in his 50s getting some self awareness but I think like I've definitely I'm a lot more self aware than I was when I first saw this film as like a teenager going like that's really cool <laughs>
3: well yeah i I, um to echo your your point you had earlier like um there's there's so much going on in these films that they do stand up to repeat Mm -hmm. watches and i think yeah they do benefit from like i say i wasn't um the biggest fan of grand budapest when i first saw it but the more i watch it the more i enjoy it and the more i get out of it but yeah as i say they his his style is an acquired taste but at the same time it's amazing how he has created his own style and as i say how instantly recognizable his style is
1: yeah and i think like you mentioned this is like the first film that really kind of like we're in wes anderson land now do you mean like whereas the royal tenenbaums like it's kind of got a foot in both worlds where it's like it's new york but it's wes anderson's new york whereas this Mm -hmm. is like proper sort of crazy town <laughs> yeah yeah you're in crazy yeah because yeah, it's like it's not i don't know even though it's italy it's like that it, it doesn't fit feel, it feels like this fairy tale like a uh, p- picture book version of what italy is as opposed to like a real place um so let yeah let me ask you uh which is proving to be one of the most difficult questions on the podcast um which couple of family member would you keep but in doing so, you have to get rid of the filmography of everyone else in the family.
3: This is is a really tough one. <laughs> um, and I am just going to go for, for the cop-out answer and just say, you've. I mean, you know, Godfather and Godfather 2 are, you know, two masterpieces. Um, I say I need to, I, I do need to revisit the conversation. It's been a while since I've seen that, but I remember that being very good. So, yeah, I don't know, I but then again lost in translation's one of my favorite films i think that's a great film but then i'm not over i don't i'm not overly bowled over by sophia coppola's other films mm-hmm. so yeah i i think i am just going to cop out and say yeah you got to keep the godfather and godfather part 2 and and obviously the other stuff that he's done
1: <laughs> so yeah I mean, yeah uh, that, that that is like i think i think that is the surefire front runner at the moment. And it's it's mm-hmm. interesting to hear people's interpretation of it. Some people are like ultimately selfish with their uh, answers where it's like, well, I love this film, so I'm keeping that person. Whereas other people are like the greater good of cinema would be at its best if Francis Ford Coppola, for instance, were, were kept because it's like there's well, the yeah, whole it's, it's...
3: It's amazing how far you know the, the whole point of you know you doing this podcast, like how far the couple of connections, how run, how deep it runs. Because mm-hmm. yeah, it was um, I was listening to your your conversation episode with uh, Rich from from Better Max, and he mentioned about, but that means I'd have to get rid of Rocky Four, and I'm just like, oh God, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just all these like connections of like, but but that's such a beloved film, but then you're like, on the other hand, you're like, but it's Godfather, it's Godfather yeah. one and two
1: yeah and it's that whole it's that whole like you get rid of francis ford coppola then you think of like the ramifications on cinema and it's like yeah but a lot of people are like you you then lose star wars or you then lose yeah and if you lose star wars you lose star trek and it's like it's the films the films wouldn't have been made without the without the kind of success of star wars to be like
3: yeah because he was uh He was Lucas's uh, sort of mentor in a way, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, so Lucas uh, won a competition through his university to be on set at Warner Brothers, and it happened to be that uh, Francis Ford Coppola was filming Finian's Rainbow and saw him across the kind of lot, and he was like the only person on the lot because it was kind of like handing over of the baton between old and new Hollywood, and it's like everyone on the set was like, 50 plus and then there's these two young guys with beards and like, <laughs> two bearded nerds yeah two bearded <laughs> nerds and they kind of went bang like let's and then yeah, yeah. Oh, do you want to hang out <laughs> yeah and then it's like <laughs> like even if you look back as like uh american graffiti like that's produced by francis ford coppola yeah thx uh as 11... you say that's yeah that's that's one one three eight yeah is is released like through american Zoetrope and it's like yeah like i think i don't know what people think of george lucas and that it's like that is that is something that has come up time and time again on this podcast it's like that is that is a kind of like
3: no it's a good point saying you know the, the bigger ramifications of of cinema and definitely blockbuster cinema can be yeah can definitely be traced back to him
1: yeah even talk about the godfather it's like films i think it's mentioned in the kind of uh easy riders raging bull where they kind of say like a film had never done them numbers until that film came out so it's like yeah and it's kind of, that kind of maybe put the uh the stepping stones so we got a jaws which then put the stepping stone so we got star wars it's like yeah we could yeah we could talk about this for hours, but let's not. Um, so let me ask you, are the Copplers the greatest film family of all time? No, that
3: would be the Baldwins. So you've got <laughs> uh, Alec, yeah. Billy, Stephen, and the other one. <laughs> you know, To quote <laughs> that um, that thing from South Park, the movie, what's the worst thing about being a Baldwin? Nothing. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I, I think, yeah, in, in serious, I think obviously... As you've uncovered, the 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 Coppolas definitely seem to be one of the you know widest reaching families in in uh, you know cinema um, and the most varied. So I'd have to say, yeah, they're probably in terms of talent in front and behind the camera. you have yeah, you do have a lot of acting families like you know uh, you know the Sheens and stuff. And I'm I'm trying to think of obviously yeah, you have the Baldwins. But in terms of I say talent across, you know, behind mm-hmm. and in front of the camera, I think it's going to be hard to top the couplers.
1: Yeah, I, I think I've kind of like set up a very impossible question with that one because I like I, I've given a family where it's like they do everything. Do you know what I mean? they, they're everywhere. Very, yeah, they're very much like they've monopolized Hollywood in a way where right? it's, like,
3: <laughs> it's like a secret society. They've yeah. embedded themselves in everywhere. <laughs> Actually, I am also a coupler.
1: That, that's going to be the big reveal at the end. I'll, I'll, I'll pull off my face in a kind of uh, Mission Impossible-esque fashion, and I, I will be Francis Ford Coppola underneath. Well, I was going
3: to say, this. instead of, you know, like um, in the Marvel, instead of, uh, you know, Hail Hydra, it's going to be Hail Coppola.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to be like a, a Coppola scroll at the end. I'm just going to tra- <laughs> transform into one of them. Perfect. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to really figure out by doing this podcast is, you mentioned it's one of your favourite films. Uh, what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation?
3: Now that is a uh, a very tough one, uh, and I was thinking about this, and I'm pretty sure he says, "I hear the Avengers is going to be awesome." <laughs> I love it. Um, or, or the other one I was, the other line I was trying to think of is that uh is it Scarlett Johansson's uh boyfriend in that is it Giovanni Ribisi mm-hmm. he's he's definitely punching very very high in that film <laughs> so it'd be something along those lines of like he's a very lucky man
1: perfect that's a that's an amazing answer uh George again uh before I let you go can you tell us where people can find yourself and retro ramble online
3: yeah so uh retro ramble should be available on all good and bad podcast apps <laughs> and services um you can even listen to we do have a a website retroramble.blog, blog, uh, so as you can uh, just listen to it through the website but we're on facebook we've got a facebook page we're on twitter instagram though i don't Post as much on Instagram, <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, so um I say we're we're across sort of most uh, social media, uh, but yes, uh, retro ample. I say we're a monthly podcast, so um, yeah, check us out if you're interested in sort of 80s and 90s blockbuster and cult type movies.
1: I would very much. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring and saying if if, if you're not listening to them, guys, make sure you listen to them. Right now, thank There's you, some fun, Yeah, I, I I recently listened to your Blade episode after kind of doing. I got I went down a rabbit hole, of being like, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch all the Blade films, and then I'm like, yeah, like loved episode <laughs> on that. And,
3: uh, and then you got to the third one, like, oh dear.
1: Yeah, I think I fell. I think I because I kind of did them in a day, and I fell asleep but uh, during the third one. I went, I've got no. I'm not compelled in any way to, to to pick that up and watch the rest of it. So I've seen... It's such a it's such a sharp drop after the first <laughs> two. It's like,
3: they're, they're great films, and then it just goes, ooh. Um, but yes, no, uh, it was a lot of fun. I, Blade was one of those films that we, Charlie and I hadn't seen in a long time, so it was a lot of fun to to go back and revisit that. And it's it's amazing how influential, you know, because it was pre-Matrix mm-hmm. as well. Um, so like how influential... And, before the whole marvel machine that dominated cinemas and tv
1: well george thank you very much for coming along for this sea exploration adventure with me and making some copper connections
3: well thank you very much for having me it's uh, it's been an absolute delight and uh, it's been a lot of fun talking about a, a very fun film so yes thanks for having me <laughs>
1: there we go guys a massive thanks for listening and again a massive thank you to george for coming on this sea exploration with me as it's already been said and i'll say it again be sure that you do check out retro ramble it is a fantastic dive into nostalgia and all things good if you enjoyed this episode on the life aquatic with steve sisu be sure to check out my podcast family it's not a network it's a family cohorts over on the pod charles cinecast where they are currently doing a week by week swap over between wes anderson and paul thomas anderson movies they will be covering the life aquatic with steve zizu probably in much more detail uh, in a few weeks time so be sure to check that out as well as all the other great stuff they're doing as for next week on the podcast i'll be joined by the other mcgee brother charlie to talk about spike jones's 1999 meta mind-bending comedy drama being john malkovich As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can do that on all the socials. So that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd, all at CagedInPod. Or you can drop me an email, which I would love you to do with a little voice note of what you think of any of the upcoming or previous films that we've covered on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this on right now. As always, I've been Petrus Pat Silivus, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. So remember to keep it Coppola, and I'll be sure to catch you next time.
2: This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, a Driptown Limery, Maine, It's family.